This is the first episode of the Richards Report series on behavioral economics. Behavioral economics is a bit of a passion of mine and I was lucky enough to do a course this year on it. I'll be sharing some of what I learned from that course and we'll be lucky to be speaking with two of my lecturers from over at Harvard Business School too. John Bashiras, Associate Professor of Business Administration in the Negotiation, Organizations and Markets Unit. Before joining HBS, John was an Assistant Professor of Finance at the Stanford Graduate School of Business too. His recent work includes studying the participation in retirement savings plans, household investment decisions, and healthcare choices. We also speak with Michael Norton, the Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School and a member of Harvard's Behavioral Insights Group. He co-wrote Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending. He also gave a famous TED Talk on money and happiness that has been watched over 5 million times. But now he's hit the big time and is on the Richards Report. Okay, a change of structure from the usual format. Instead of trying to squeeze as much as I can into an hour-long episode with potentially a big knowledge dump all at once, I thought it might be a bit more digestible to break it all up into a four-part series or a quadrilogy. Yep, a quadrilogy. This is the first episode and we'll start off with the background behind behavioral economics and the process of how we actually make decisions. Second episode looks at things like confirmation bias, projection bias, and why we overweight small probabilities happening. Third episode looks at other biases that we have like recency bias and present bias, which might be relevant if you're thinking of making some new year resolutions at this time of of year. The final episode, let's call, call it the season finale. This looks at behavioral economics from a different perspective. Instead of how it can make us a better investor or we can be better with our money, in this episode we'll actually discuss how the study of behavioral economics can make us happier too, as more money doesn't equal more happiness, which is a topic we actually touch on. As with all episodes of the Richards Report, this doesn't qualify as an investment advice and is just for educational purposes only. Okay, that's enough from me. Let's get straight into it. Here's my chat with Harvard Associate Professor John Bashiris. You're listening to The Richards Report, where we will speak with investment experts from around the country. We will cut through the jargon to allow you to make more insightful investment decisions for your future. This is The Richards Report. John, behavioural economics studies the cognitive biases that we all have. Why is it so important to be aware of them when it comes to money and your investments? Yeah, so um, I, I think in order to address this question, it's probably best to, to take a step back and, um, and really adopt this framework that Daniel Kahneman, one of the founders of the behavioral economics movement, has, uh, has helped us with in his, his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So um, before we get to the applications to money invest and investments, it's helpful to understand that humans have really two modes of making decisions. Kahneman calls them system one and system two. It, it's not unique to him. A lot of other folks have, uh, have thought about things in this, in this loose way. Uh, what do those two systems mean? System one is a sort of fast, intuitive way of approaching problems that arise in your day-to-day life, whether they're small stakes or, or important high-stakes decisions. And then system two is more... Uh, contemplative, it's more reflective, it's much slower. Uh, and so while system one will speed ahead and, and reach an answer, 
because it's using uh, using a bunch of mental shortcuts in order to get there. System two will plot along a little bit more methodically and perhaps reach a little bit more of a reasoned conclusion. Now, why do we have these two modes of thinking? It, it sounds like we should be using system two all the time. It's going to reach a, a more reasoned outcome. Well, uh, the fact that our, our brains are finite, we can't have infinite pr- processing power means that if we were to use system two all the time, we would be completely, uh, completely paralyzed. We wouldn't be able to get out the door in the morning. We wouldn't be able to really take any sort of decision because we would be constantly calculating. And we may, we may not have evolved. For example, like if you're standing in the middle of a road and a bus is coming, you need your system one, get out of the way. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So it's, it's, as you're saying, highly adaptive to have both of these ways of thinking about things. System two for when there's a really important decision that needs to be made and system one to kind of get you through day-to-day life and avoid being uh, run down by a bus or eaten by a, a tiger or a lion or something like that. So, um, so system one, how does it work so quickly? It works so quickly uh, by adopting these, these mental shortcuts that I mentioned a moment ago. Um, it, it sort of, uh, again, I, I like your, your uh, reference to evolutionary thinking. Um, these shortcuts are going to help us reach the correct conclusion quickly in most cases, right? And so um, the, the nature of a, of a shortcut is it's going to get you from here to there faster, but along the way, you, you kind of skip certain steps. I mean, in the case of a mental shortcut, you s- skip certain steps of logic that, um, that might have been important actually to reach the, uh, the cor- correct conclusion. So when we have uh, system one thinking, we're going to be able to arrive at an answer um, in you know, much smaller amount of time than if we had tried to engage system two. Um, but in some cases, system one is going to lead us astray. And that's really the foundation of, of the biases uh, that, you, uh, that you mentioned in your question. Now, um, what's so pernicious about system one is when we're operating it, we're not necessarily aware. In fact, um, you know, we're kind of moving too quickly to, to be aware that, uh, that for this particular decision that happens to be at hand, we might not be applying the appropriate mental shortcut. And that's a situation where our bias is going to lead us to an incorrect conclusion, an unwise decision. Um, perhaps if we had uh, stuck with with system two for that particular example, we would have reached a, a better decision, but it's hard to do that all the time. Maybe there was no prompt to step back and reflect. So system one uh, guides us to uh, guides us to a mistake, and and in uh, in the case of managing your money, managing your investments, um, you can you can see why uh, these these biases could get in the way. And, and I think you know maybe we'll have a chance to talk about so how some of these specific biases operate and and how to watch out for them, et, et cetera. But um, but because a lot of financial decisions are complex, they're things that people don't necessarily have a lot of experience with. Uh, the heuristics, the mental shortcuts might work in some cases, but in a lot of cases are going to be misapplied and, and lead to and lead to worse financial outcomes than we'd hope for. Okay. Well, with that in mind, could we jump into some specific examples of where 
the biases we may have may lead to an incorrect conclusion. So um, let's start off sure. with um, loss aversion and what that is and why that affects us. It's a great one. Yeah. So uh, I, I mentioned Kahneman a moment ago. This is uh, this is one due to Kahneman and, and his longtime collaborator, Amos Tversky. Um, so what they recognized, and they had a, a lot of uh, empirical evidence by conducting experiments to, uh, to, to back up this, this claim, but what they were able to teach us and show us is that when human beings are judging the outcome of some decision, say it's a, an investment, but you know, it could be any decision, we judge the outcome as a change relative to some sort of reference point. Um, so in the case of investing in a, um, a security, I think a stock or a bond, a very natural reference point would be, well, what was the price at which I purchased it? Um, and then I'm maybe making the decision of, of whether or not to, uh, to sell it. If I'm selling at a price that's higher than the price at which I purchased it, I'm, I'm going to be booking that at a gain. And um, if I'm selling it at a price that's lower than the price at which I purchased it, I'm going to be booking that experience as a loss. So we're judging things as gains and losses relative to some reference point. Um, in this case, it's the, it's the purchase price. But um, in different contexts, you could imagine other reference points. If you're a marathon runner, actually, this is a, an interesting study due to some folks at the University of Chicago. If you're a marathon runner, it, it turns out that you uh, use as a reference point sort of even time. So can, can you beat four hours? Um, if you're able to get in uh, below four hours, that's a, that's a gain. If you're, if you're above four hours in your, in your completion time, that's a, that's a loss. So, um, so we, we judge outcomes as gains or losses relative to a reference point. And then the, the real kicker, the kind of key insight and the, the real power of loss aversion is that losses feel about twice as bad as a gain of the same size feels good. So in the case of investing in, in a stock, if I buy it at $100 and I sell it at $90, that $10 loss feels about twice as bad as a gain of the same size. So buying it at 100 selling it at 110 feels good. Um, and so that actually leads us to be kind of actually very, very uh, wary of, of taking risks, uh, maybe kind of sticking with the, uh, the stock market example. Um, this is often posed as a reason why people are reluctant to invest in the stock market in the first place, right? So you look at the stock market fluctuating wildly up and down, up and down. Which it's doing right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, uh, if, if, if I put my money in now, well, yeah, I could gain money, but I could also lose money. And that loss really looms large. That really, that really feels uh, bad in, in, as, a, as a possibility. And therefore, maybe I don't invest at all, even if, as we know, over the, over the long run, um, stocks are, are offering a return that is, that is pretty hard to beat. I always think that crystallizing losses is something that people are adverse to. So that's why they often sell their winners and hold on to their losers, which can actually inhibit them. So I, I assume this comes back to our evolution once again is, okay, say, for example, <laughs> like out in the Sahara, if we get, gain something, you know, don't get me wrong, that's a good thing. But if we lose something, we might die. So evol evolution has kind of taught yep. us to panic if we lose things. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that's, um, that's very sort of short run thinking, which is appropriate in the environment that, uh, that this heuristic, uh, this, this bias was, uh, was developed in. Um, but in the, uh, the case of, of investments, 
which you know certainly weren't around when uh, when loss aversion came to be embedded in the in the way human brains operate. Um, that that sort of short run time horizon where it's appropriate to be really worried about losses is is not going to be uh, not going to be applicable. It's going to lead to lead to poor decisions. John used the example of marathon runners then, and I just thought it would be worth mentioning this as a New Year's New Year's resolution of mine for 2019 is to actually run a marathon. Now, before I've even started running, I've noticed that as I'm chatting to people about this, I'm actually getting anchored to a time of four hours. And just like John suggested, I'm now thinking about that time as being either a win or a loss, depending what side of it I am of it. And I don't even know if it's realistic or not, as I'm well past the days of being a professional athlete. But I, I do want to try and tap into this time to capitalize on that loss aversion bias that we all have to try and motivate me. I guess this is a kind of related to that fear of failure. Anyway, enough about that and enough about me. Uh, let's get back to our chat with John as we move on to the status quo bias. M- moving along to status quo bias. Um, in Australia, mm. people don't like changing banks. Many people don't even like changing beers. Um, people don't like <laughs> changing um, their superannuation, which um, I think you're probably more familiar with the uh, 401k terminology. Right, but right. how can we try not to be affected by status quo bias? Yeah, so indeed, people are, are very prone to just sticking with whatever they happen to have at the moment. We were discussing loss aversion a moment ago. That's potentially one underlying factor. Yep where whatever you happen to have now, you're afraid of, of losing because of loss aversion. Um, and whatever you gain from switching to some alternative option is, is not kind of as attractive as losing what you currently have now is, is when it comes to um, feeling bad about that loss. So how can we overcome status quo bias? I'll, I'll actually um, sort of um, take the question in a different uh, direction. This is actually one of the most um, most well-known and widely applied uh, so-called nudges that we use in the field of, of behavioral economics, where you try to harness people's status quo bias by changing the default option, whatever is going to be implemented if they, if they don't take an action. Um, and so because people are so prone to sticking to the status quo, I'll, I'll return in a moment to what uh, those individuals can do to be be a little bit less prone to sticking with uh, the status quo. But it's an opportunity for um, for others to actually help guide people's decisions. So, so one example, uh, you mentioned superannuation funds. Um, in, in the U.S., we have our, our 401k plan. So one example I've, I've studied quite extensively is um, what happens when you change the default status quo in a 401k plan from not being enrolled in that plan to being enrolled. So a switch from um, you arrive at a company that offers one of these retirement savings plans. And unless you take some action, you are not going to be deducting some of your paycheck every pay, pay cycle in order to save it in that, in that plan. And switching that default, switching the, switching the status quo to if you do nothing and you just go along with the status quo, you are going to be saving. You're automatically going to be contributing, say, 3% of your paycheck every pay cycle into, into this retirement savings account. And, you know, speaking to the power of the status quo effect, that just makes a night and day difference when it comes to participation rates in these plans. Uh, moving people maybe from 
uh, 40% of them, 50% of them participating in one of these plans uh, after a year working at a company to something like 95% of people. So you know, that's a slightly different take on your question. How can we overcome the status quo bias? Well, the people who are setting defaults have a very powerful tool in their hands that can um, move people's outcomes, ideally in, uh, in, in a positive direction, helping them um, achieve, uh, achieve better results. How can the individuals themselves overcome the status quo bias? Um, here's one where I would say, actually, um, whenever you enter a, think of it as a long-term contract. So you can um, think of that as, as signing up for a, a bank to be your main financial institution. You can think of that as signing up for a... Or, or like a phone plan or something like that. Or a phone plan, exactly, yeah. So I, actually, one, one thing I do just to kind of regularly check in on whether these things are still meeting my needs is I say, okay, well, I'm going to set a calendar reminder for myself a year from now to just revisit. Is this still the right bank for me? Is this still the right phone plan for me? Is this still the right gym membership for me? Am I actually using these things? Am I using them correctly? Would I benefit from switching or canceling? Um, because uh, life is busy. And if, if there's not something which just forces me to pause, um, get out of the system one mode and, and switch over into the system two mode where I'm a little bit more reflective, a little bit more careful and deliberative about making decisions, I'm just going to blithely go along and, uh, and maintain the, the status quo. So, so that's you know, one thing I would suggest. Um, I, I would be wary of, uh, of suggesting to people or, or having people feel that it's enough to just sort of be aware that the status quo bias exists. So certainly if you're on a website and you um, are maybe making an online purchase and you need to check out, there's gonna be some box which is already checked for you, which is saying, yes, I'd like to receive promotional emails. So you can start to look out for people who are, who are using the status quo bias in a way that might not be in your best interest, signing you up for things just uh, by default that uh, you might not be interested in. But in general, I, I think the status quo bias is powerful enough that simply being aware that it, it exists and that it is operating on a lot of your decisions is not necessarily going to help you break out of it. And so being uh, using external uh, external mechanisms such as your calendar or whatever system you might have to organize your personal life to, to just get you to check in every once in a while on a, a few of these things that could be quite costly to you would be, uh, would be my recommendation. So it's not just enough to be aware of the status quo bias and assume that it won't affect you now. You need to put things in place to protect yourself from it. The power of defaults in forms and applications really really capitalize on this bias that we have and is often used by choice architects to get their desired outcomes. So how much are you affected by status quo bias? When was the last time you changed, say, your bank account or your superannuation fund, even changed your car insurance? We're at a time with New Year's resolutions and people wanting to get fit. Well, gyms love to tap into our status quo bias with the order of automated direct debit that keeps coming out of our bank accounts long after the motivation to go to the gym disappears. Remember the status quo bias when you're signing up for these memberships like this. I would like to mention that this episode is brought to you by Six Park. Six Park is Australia's leading digital investment advisor. If part
part of your New Year's resolutions for 2019 are to sort out your finances or to set up an investment portfolio, then go to sixpark.com.au, click Try Six Park Now, and for free, you can see the investment portfolio Six Six Park would recommend for you. Six Park set you up with your own globally diversified portfolio and manage it for you too. Go to sixpark.com.au to find out more. Okay, on to the next question. One last question I've got is, what is availability heuristic? And uh, maybe before we answer that question, we've used the word heuristic quite a few times. Uh, I, always, mm. I always think of yeah. heuristics as a rule of thumb. Well, how, yep. What's the best way to kind of describe what a heuristic is? Yeah, no, so so I think a heuristic is, is exactly as, as you said. It's um, a... Uh, a rule of thumb that you apply in a situation where you're asked to make a judgment about the likelihood of uh, some event occurring or a judgment about the quality of, uh, uh, of an object or, or sort of any number of judgments. And this, uh, this mental shortcut is, um, is something that has been ingrained in the way the human brain operates for, for quite a long time. It's going to reach a reasonable answer in a large number of cases, but um, really kind of the key to understanding uh, behavioral economics is in a, in a number of predictable ways, these heuristics can, can lead us astray because, um, you know, they're structured for the, uh, you know, a wide range of environments, but they don't quite get the right answer in all environments. Is that just a rule of thumb that only looks at certain options? Yeah, well, so the, the availability heuristic um, really kicks in when we're asked to make judgments about the likelihood of uh, some future event occurring. So um, we're maybe asked to make a judgment as to the likelihood that this um, this small cap stock or maybe even a micro cap stock is going to uh, explode in its returns and 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 really make everyone who's invested in it rich, right? So you know that's uh, um, that's actually a great example for where the availability heuristic might lead us astray. What the availability heuristic says is that we're going to judge the likelihood of an event or the probability of an event based on the ease with which we can retrieve examples. Of, of that sort of event, right? So um, how easily does our mind come upon uh, examples of the thing that we're being asked to judge the, the likelihood of? So we're being asked to judge, well, you know, how likely is it that this micro cap stock is going to um, experience extremely high, you know, thousands of percent returns? Um, how do we even kind of come to some sort of judgment on that? Well, what we should do is we should um, go back to a uh, attrition bias free data set of past micro cap stocks and see, okay, well, out of the uh, thousands of stocks that, that fit that description, how many of them ultimately experience that sort of outcome. But what we're going to do, according to the availability heuristic, is just sort of reach back into our mind and think, okay, well, you know, um, how many of those have I, have I heard yep. of, right? Um, and, you know, a prob- probably a few of them will come to mind. You don't need that many. Um, and what's not going to be coming to mind, because it's not at all salient, is the many, 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 many more of those microcap stocks that sort of just bumbled along and never experienced uh, any, any positive returns worth really writing home about. Um, and so here's a situation where what easily comes to mind, what's available in our mind, 
are the examples of really high positive returns. And what's less available, um, easily retrievable in our mind is all the examples where that didn't happen or the thing went to zero. And, and so we're going to um, put, put too high a probability, uh, an artificially high likelihood of uh, these, these good positive returns occurring relative to what's, what's actually going to be the case. And I think that's actually not uh, an unreasonable hypothesis for, for why um, people are pretty perpetually disappointed by, by some of these microcap stocks. Um, you know, they have, uh, they have actually relating to an earlier conversation they have a little bit of the lottery ticket flavor. And, um, the other example that you got me thinking about was, um, up until December of 2017 Bitcoin and, um, the availability mm-hmm. there was yeah. that it was just kept on going up and up and up. Whereas yep. just taking a step back and just kind of having a look at things. And I know, I know I've probably got some listeners that love their Bitcoin, but, um, uh, you, you know, what <laughs> So what is salient in front of mind for us right now in December 2018? Well, there's been a bit of volatility in the share market in the last few months of 2018. Recent examples where tech stocks have gone backwards and uh, a lot of negative headlines about property prices in 2019 too. Now, I don't have a crystal ball, but be careful to not put too much of a high probability on this for information, just because it's more easily available right now. That's just the power of the availability bias. Okay, that's it for episode one. Episode two is ready to go right now. But this this isn't Netflix. You need to pop over to wherever you get your podcasts from and download the next episode. And of course, subscribe too so that you receive the other episodes of this quadrilogy. I'm Ted Richards. See you on the next episode of the Richards Report Behavioral Economics Series.